Welcome to the Drill Down with business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 155. Just ahead, Beyond Meat. They don't have meat, they do have cash, but do they have enough? And Roblox out with metaverse earnings that are confusing Wall Street. We're gonna hear from the company itself. And a real estate investment trust that is a different kind of gamble, Vici company focused on Las Vegas properties. We're going to look at that business and how that business is different than other kinds of hotel properties with CEO Ed Petonak. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more. All within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA. A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down so many ways and in so many places, not least of which iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, um, iHeart, TuneIn. But if you hit the subscribe button, you'll be alerted to every single one of our shows right when they happen. So make sure to do just that. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind stocks and a move. Maybe that might explain which is the tail and which is the dog. But the beast that is Isaac Webster, our executive uh, producer, is with us. Isaac, how are you? <laughs> Good. How are you doing, Corey? Great. Beautiful sunny day here in Northern California. I'm going to be uh, near you or we're near where you are now in Southern California this weekend. You won't be there. I won't be here, but I'm glad to have you in town. Sorry, I'll miss you. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with one of your favorites, Isaac, Beyond Meat. Beyond Meat, you know I have it in my fridge. Uh, full yeah. disclosure, Beyond Meat trades under BYND and shares have fallen 75% in a year. And BYND shares are trading around 26 bucks a share right now, a far, far, far cry from their 52-week high of 160. So the question, when we talk about these stock performances for all of the companies we talk about, I think the thing for our listeners to think about is, does that in fact reflect what the company is doing? Or does, does, is the stock right? Um, and what we've seen is, I think what you've seen is not a dramatic change in the performance of Beyond Meat. The performance has been consistently bad. It's the question is, you know, what is the, what is the hope for that performance? And is the share price is reflecting, I think, that loss of hope. We had a quarterly earnings from the company that once again, um, showed that Wall Street had overestimated their success. Wall Street seems to have wanted, it, it wants Beyond Meat to win, right? Wall Street wants every company to win. Wall Street sure. is perpetually optimistic. They get paid to come up with ridiculous beliefs on high valuations. They don't get paid to be pessimistic. They, they don't attract people who are pessimistic. Wall Street is full of, especially Wall Street analysts, full of cheerleaders, not analysts. And so, and we've, and Beyond Meat is a, is a great example of that, where, where the estimates were, were a reflection of, a, of an optimism that the, the business just has never shown us. Um, they've missed estimates, which is the, the cliche, right? They missed estimates, I think, seven out of the last eight quarters. Um, specifically, in this quarter, they just reported their profits, which had been $32.7 million in the prior year, in the prior year's uh, uh, first quarter, were $200,000 this quarter. Eek. Even under increased volumes. 
So they're sell, they, they're cutting prices like crazy, even while they maintain that their stuff is better than what's on the market and tastes better and the same. They can't seem to uh, um, get people to buy it. And so they've been cutting prices like crazy, uh, and not just in the U.S., internationally. They're international business, uh, retail or food service. Um, their number, their unit volume was up 20 to 30 percent. They're selling more of it, but they're cutting prices. Their revenues were down 7 percent despite selling about 25 percent more stuff. And that's just a bad sign. If, you, if you're insisting yeah. you have a premium product, but you can't create premium prices, one of those things isn't true, right? It's either it's not premium um, or, or it's only, you know, it's only a temporary thing. So the CEO Ethan Brown was asked about that on the conference call. You know, what's, what's going on here with your specifically international business? And by the way, if you keep selling money, if you're barely making any money and you're basically burning through cash once everything is counted, how much cash do you have? And do you really know precisely how much cash you need to keep this business alive? Ethan Brown had this to say. The most precise answer I can give is, is probably going to be a little bit lacking. Um, but the, 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 the general trend here, uh, it gets back to my point. Like I would not take this quarter's cash burn and replicate it out and say, okay, that's when you guys are out. Uh, we're taking these steps that I mentioned, uh, particularly on the inventory side, you'll see across the course of the year, uh, some, some uh, cash being freed up there. Um, and then, you know, again, we've had some lower than we'd like sales quarters. That doesn't seem to be persistent. Um, and so we'll generate some, some better uh, operating outcomes from that perspective as well. So uh, we actually feel uh, pretty okay about our cash position and, and you know, we're obviously aware of it, and and uh, we're at the point that we feel we need to do something. We will, but right now we're we're managing it through just just careful use of, of, of the funds. So I don't think he meant to say we're only being careful about the use of funds right now, but clearly when you're really burning through so much cash um, uh, so quickly and cutting prices, not raising prices of a product that you've insisted is is premium in nature, and still talking about you know like. McDonald's is perpetual test at McDonald's. It doesn't seem to turn into any product sales. Um, uh, this isn't proving to be the big business that I think uh, the Wall Street cheerleaders had hoped that it would be. And uh, yeah, you're seeing that in the performance of the stock, but maybe more importantly, the business is underperforming. I want to know where these prices are being cut because at my grocery stores here where I live, they're, you know, they're not any lower than they have been ever. Yeah, well, they have been across the board, especially the international business that they're just trying to get into. They're just not able to, to, you know, get the traction that at least Wall Street was assuming they would. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Roblox. Roblox trades under RBLX and shares have fallen 62% in a year. 62. 62. That's not good when the market's down about, what, 17, 18% for the S&P 500? Yeah, it's hard to imagine. Just about eight months ago, Roblox was traded at 134. Now it's at 28. Yeah, and so this quarter they reported uh, this week was, I thought, really interesting and a little confusing. Um, the Some of the bookings numbers in particular um, didn't look so good. And when the, when the numbers came out in the after-hours trading session, uh, they announced the earnings. Uh, the stock sold off pretty dramatically, double digits uh, right away, and then proceeded to kind of come back and pick up steam. And people took a little bit closer number at what was said in the conference call and what the results were. And specifically, you know, the question is, 
how are these guys able to um, really grow their user base and and grow the revenues associated with that user base? And when you listen to the conference call and you listen to what CEO Michael Guthrie, who is a great, you know, I know him a little bit, um, uh, but he's he's been around Silicon Valley for a long time. He was a analyst at CS First Boston a million years ago and has been at a bunch of tech companies in the Valley. And he's got a lot of credibility in Silicon Valley. And he came out and said, you know, we're actually the year over year stuff that they saw where people were getting away from their phones and getting outdoors and getting away from games because the COVID lockdowns were over. That change has kind of already changed. That's done. And so they're, they're starting to see things get a little bit better that April was, was pretty good and that they're kind of year over year growth that was slowing down kind of bottomed in April and, and in March. And, and so March and April, you know, were the worst and May is a little bit better and maybe it might get even better in June. Um, they think the, the shape of the curve well, listen to Michael Guthrie from Roblox. Uh, normally, April is a very strong month for us. It was incredibly strong um, in 21. It was one of the last sort of super high year-over-year growth rates as COVID uh, last year was starting to wane and, and reopen. So we had expected year-over-year growth to uh, bottom in April. Right now, it looks like it bottomed in March, which is good. So sequentially, our year-over-year growth rates in April were better than they were in March. And on a year-over-year basis, I expect that to be true in May and again in June. In terms of the overall shape of the curve, normally April is uh, lower than April. And then uh, and then June is uh, back up higher than May. And really, the opening of the summer season, where normal seasonality starts to, to kick in. Last year, 21, we didn't see the normal seasonal curves because we were going from heavy COVID period early in the year, first three to four months, to much more of a reopen period, May, June, July, through the summer. So I don't know, that sounds kind of optimistic to me, the notion that maybe the worst is over, just recently over, and that a look at the results from the first quarter weren't thrilling, but the commentary about the end of the first quarter and the third quarter, or I'm sorry, into the second quarter, my math is so good, counting to two, let's just, let's just note that you listen to this podcast and trust what I say. You just notice I had trouble counting to two. Yes. But the second quarter, looking <laughs> a little bit better than the first quarter, um, suggests that things uh, aren't as bad at Roblox as the first quarter showed us. And uh, Michael Guthrie, like I said, does have some credibility on Wall Street, and that's got to help. Corey, what's your next drill down? Well, I want to look at Polaris. You know this Pol- company? I am very familiar with Polaris. It turns out PII shares are lower by 20% in a year, struggling to find momentum since the start of this year, 2022. Yes. And I've, and I've said that, uh, that uh, I was going to stop talking about boats and I'm going to stop talking about boats, but these guys are pretty close. They're boat adjacent. They, well, no, they actually sell boats, but they also, their big business, these off-road vehicles, these, uh, these ATVs um, and snowmobiles. Um, And, a lot of the same category characteristics uh, that the boating market shows um, are similar with, you know, the recreational boat business and the recreational ATV business. The price points are similar. The demographics of the customers are similar. The, um, the notion of what's disposable income and, and are, are people, do people want to be celebrate the great outdoors or not? Those things are similar as well. So I thought it was interesting to look at uh, uh, what Polaris had to say in their most recent quarter. So these guys come out and uh, and tell us that, you know, that that their customers are strong and that their business is doing pretty well. And the, the stock might not be reflecting that right now, 
But that, yes, once again, we're hearing just like we heard from the boat makers, that the biggest problem is getting enough stuff to sell. But they're figuring out ways to do that. And um, what was interesting to me, and I think what we'll look back on these last few COVID years uh, um, for a long time to come, at the way that some businesses didn't just deal with the problem, but changed the way they do business. And what you see at Polaris in particular, and they, they really call this out, is that when they've, when they realize, they've, they've tried to figure out where they're going to have unexpected problems, which is an oxymoron, right? If it's unexpected, you didn't know you were going to have it. But by figuring out where those things could happen, they figured out what models that they were selling weren't essential to their product lines. And they've reduced the number of models that they sell. And they've created a, a, what they're referring to as a SWAT team to go from, from component to component to tackle supply problems when they seem to be anywhere right over the horizon. And what they've realized is that they can kind of fix those problems with their key suppliers before they manifest. And by reducing the number of products they've got in the market, they can further reduce the number of, of times that these uh, supply component supply problems can happen, thereby have more product to sell and sell more stuff across the board, whether it is ATVs or boats or um, uh, snowmobiles, whatever it is. Um, here is the CEO, Mike Speetson, CEO of Polaris, right up there in the, uh, in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Here's Mike Speetson. We're staying very close to the, the couple of key suppliers we have to make sure we understand. And, you know, at least the communications that we've had at this point suggest that they are going to uh, be driving improvement in their delivery to us uh, here in the second quarter. And when you couple that with the other actions that I highlighted during my comments, I mean, we have literally taken out dozens upon dozens of models uh, to reduce the complexity. Uh, I think you've probably seen that across our industry as well as many others. Uh, to try and take that complexity out. It makes it easier to get the vehicles through the, the production process. Um, where we can, we're redesigning so that we can move, you know, between chips or uh, even components that are causing us some some challenges. And then, you know, we've been operating with a, a, a temporary set of SWAT teams on some of these troubled supply chain areas. And the reality is it isn't going to get better anytime soon. And so we're making a lot of those organizational moves more permanent. And that allows us to make sure we've got the right staffing and the, the folks that can drive uh, the kind of, you know, hour to hour uh, discussions that we've got to have with uh, with our suppliers. So, you know, we're, we're watching all that. You know, we are seeing some uh, minor green shoots out there relative to, you know, trucking availability and things like that. It's tough to know if that's a, a trend or just a, a data point, but we're going to keep a, a close eye on that. So, yeah, hour to hour, you get a sense that these guys really are right on top of of what they need to be doing to keep their product uh, coming out of that factory um, and, and hitting the markets. And it's got to be optimistic whether the share price um, reflects that or not. All right, coming up next, we're going to look at a really interesting company uh, in that it's a, a, a different kind of re real estate investment trust. A company that's focused on properties in the gaming industry and the Las Vegas Strip in particular we're talking about how that business is different than the rest of the hotel business. Vici, CEO, Ed Petonak, joins us right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, 
Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now, as promised, by the CEO of Vici. Ed Petoniak joins us right now. Um, uh, and you're in Rhode Island, interestingly, Ed. Um, uh, but your REIT is all over the place. Um, I don't know if we should start or stop talking about Ve- with Vegas, but um, you you run a, a, a real estate investment trust that is focused, uh, has a really peculiar uh, and wonderful focus. It does, Corey, and, and nice to meet you. We, uh, at this point, principally own gaming real estate. So we own casino properties as far west as Lake Tahoe, uh, down through Las Vegas, through the south and the Midwest, and all the way into Atlantic City and Springfield, Massachusetts. We own 43 properties in all. Uh, our tenants are the likes of Caesars, MGM, Penn, uh, Hard Rock, and others. Uh, and we are owners of the building. We are not operators of the business that takes place within them. Um, but we do uh, benefit greatly from how successful our operators are right now uh, and actually have been through much of COVID. We collected 100% of our rent through COVID. Um, but we do specifically benefit, uh, as you just alluded to, by being the owner of a lot of Las Vegas real estate. We own 10 assets on the Las Vegas Strip as of a week ago today when we closed our deal with MGM. And uh, we believe it's the most economically productive street in the world uh, generally, but also especially right now. And uh, very excited that our owners get to own those properties. Now, the biggest of those properties is uh, you've got the, your MGM deal, you've got Caesars, um, uh, which is an enormous, you know, real estate footprint. I, I you know, I stumbling around Vegas back in the day, and <laughs> I know these places. Yeah, our single biggest asset is actually the Venetian. It's it, the Venetian itself is the single biggest hotel complex in America with seventy one hundred rooms. It's the biggest private sector conference, convention, trade show uh, facility in the world. It's going to be the home to the MSG Sphere. Which, if you haven't checked that out, that's going to be the twenty first century entertainment and uh, gaming arena. Uh, but as well as that, we own Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, MGM right. Grand, Mandalay Bay, and uh, whatever that added up to, about six others as well. Now, those are very different properties. Those, uh, uh, those, you know, the, the, I know, again, I know the space is a little bit, which is to say the Caesars uh, property has got a lot of retail and a lot of shops. The MGM property has got a lot of focus on big events, um, uh, sporting events, boxing events, UFC fights, and, and concerts. Um, you've got the um, uh, the properties of the Venetian, the Palazzo, really focused on conventions and restaurants and uh, and gaming. And there's you know decent sized gaming operation in all these places, but. Those are very different businesses, even though they're all in the same location and they all do have some gaming uh, that takes place in them. How, how are we to understand what businesses you're truly exposed to? Yeah, it's, um, it, it, is, it, it is a very complex operating model. Um, Corey, it has all of the businesses you describe. Caesars Palace, for example, as you're alluding to, is home to the Forum Shops, which are operated by Simon. Brookfield owns the Canal Shops, the Grand Canal Shops, the Venetian. 
You're absolutely right. There's a big arena at MGM Grand. There's big theaters in many of these places. Um, and, and that's what makes the operators truly amazing to me. Um, <laughs> in my very motley career, I used to work in the ski resort business. I thought the ski resort business model, when you get to big resorts like Whistler Blackcomb, which is where I was based, uh, I thought those were complex. These are amazingly complex operating models. Uh, it takes incredible operating skill and depth and breadth to operate these facilities in all of their functionality. Um, but it is that complexity that also de-risks the, the nature of these businesses because they're not relying on one single revenue center within their aggregate. So, so if the convention business turns bad, you still maybe have shopping going on. Or it, if if the shopping is, is not, if retail spending on luxury watches isn't what it was, maybe the country music concerts and the MGM are, are bringing bodies into those facilities. Yeah, exactly. And the Venetian is a great example of that. In Q4 2021, um, when we're, we were still obviously as a country coming out of COVID, the Omicron wave was just starting to, to rise up. Um, the, the Venetian did 100% occupancy without conference, convention, and trade show being back. I didn't Again, know 100% occupancy on 7,100 rooms. And it's because, exactly to your point, while, while the likes of Amazon Web Services weren't taking up the huge trade show space with their conferences and conventions, uh, the leisure traveler had decided that Vegas is the place I want to go most right now in the world. Uh, fascinating. Um, what are the levers for you? Because you you do, I find, I've, I've got to stop saying this, it's almost a cliche on this podcast, but it does seem that the things that you can control and even the the vagarities of, 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 of you know, whether or not the hotel is 100% full or 70% full, they still got to pay your rent. And it probably doesn't make a difference to you in the short term whether or not the hotel is full. That's exactly right. Um, we are the definition of a passive owner. Um, our rent is our rent is our rent. Exactly to your point. If it's 100% occupancy, the rent is going to be X. If it's 75% occupancy, the revenue, the rent, sorry, will be X. Um, we obviously want our tenants to be amazingly successful. The more successful they are, uh, the more valuable the building becomes because the more secure the rent becomes. What are the advantages of having multiple properties in the same city, let alone the same strip? Uh, it, operationally for us, it doesn't really matter because her business model is so bloody simple. I tell people that I died and went to business model heaven. Um, we've grown our company to almost $45 billion of enterprise value. Uh, as of the other day, almost 28, 29 billion of market cap uh, with 20 people. And of those 20 people, like three of them are executive assistants. Um, all we do is collect rent. Uh, we don't so the other 17 if you don't do a damn thing. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. And so um, the value in having so much exposure to the Las Vegas Strip is because other than Macau, there's no other place like it on earth. Um, I, did, I did say what perhaps sounds a bit trite when I said that it is the most economically productive street in the world, but it actually is. You can put it up against any other street in any other city, in any other nation on the planet, 
And over that series of about two or three miles, no place, no place else in the world generates the revenue, generates the EBITDA, generates the cash flow that these assets do along the strip. The only places in the world that come close would be the likes of Disney World and Universal in Orlando. Interesting. Why, why how does your business differ from um, a hotel REIT, of which there are many? Ah, yeah. Well, and I've run two hotel REITs in a past life. And uh, one of the, the fundamental difference is hotel REITs do not get paid rent. Hotel REITs operate in a model in which they end up being, their return ends up coming through the operating free cash flow of the asset. They're not allowed to operate the asset. They have to hire a third party operator to operate on their behalf. I will tell you, having run two hotel REITs and having done well only because we knew when to sell the goddamn REIT, hotel REITs, that it is a broken business model. Um, really? if you, <laughs> to the extent that, that you and your, your listeners want an axiom today, I will give you the following axiom. In any business where the, op, the operators don't own, aren't accountable for the operating leverage, you have a bad business. When operators get paid off the top and aren't really accountable for the bottom line, oh boy, it's not real fun. It's not real good for whoever owns the asset. Um, I feel the as, same way about employment, right? I feel <laughs> the same way. If, if, if you can get your employees to understand the difference between net income and gross income and how they are solely responsible for that, yep. you get a different kind of performance, but you also have to you know, reward them in that way, right? You've got to you got to make sure that if the company makes more money, the employee makes more money, but then that's hard to do. Exactly. It's, it's so much about incentive systems. So in our model, uh, we do not participate in the operating uh, results of the asset. We get paid a rent no matter what the results are. I think I mentioned we got paid 100% of our rent in cash on time during COVID, right? This is during a period when almost every hotel REIT in America uh, was having to borrow money to, uh, to make sure they had the proper liquidity. They suspended their dividends. Uh, the, most hotel REITs that were in existence prior to the great financial crisis have never recovered to the stock prices they had before the GFC. Not before COVID, before the GFC. And it's because when times get tough, in the nature of their business model, they bear all the suffering. We don't. It's interesting. Uh, and and you, you've really grown this business. You've, uh, the net income has doubled in the last two years from, you know, from half a billion dollars to a billion, almost a billion even um, uh, in 2021. Um, is that purely about signing new properties? Uh, yeah, largely. Um, and in fact, uh, if you go back to our beginnings, which weren't that long ago, uh, 2018 was our first full year. We will actually have more than quadrupled um, the net operating income of our business. And we will have grown probably fivefold uh, the free cash flow of our business, what in a REIT is called adjusted funds from operations. The needlessly which complex is the money you write the checks from. You got to give out eighty percent of that, and that's where the money comes from. Yeah. Exactly, uh, and that's after debt service. So it is genuine free cash. Uh, if you take 
now that we've closed MGM, if you annualize our net operating income and our debt service, we will have $2 billion of, of distributable free cash versus I think we were 400 million when we got started. Eh, probably not even quite that. And it's all because we've done $29 billion of acquisitions in the last four and a half years. So what does a bad acquisition look like? What, how, what, are, the, what are the deals you need? What, what, what is the point at which you got to walk away from a deal? Yeah, well, the basic criteria we use are, is it a market geographically, demographically, and economically we want to own assets in to begin with? Uh, we generally don't want to be in markets where the trends, the secular trends around demography and economics just aren't positive. Um, if it is a market we want to be in, is it an asset we want to own? Is it in a good location? Was it well built? Does it, uh, does it compete effectively for business in its catchment area? Uh, is it a good operator? Uh, if, if the best building in the world can fail if the operator is poor. Uh, and then finally, you know, are we going to get an adequate return on our investment based on the price we're paying and the income we'll receive? So it really is just a numbers game where you where you you want to be you want to get a, you want to get a property where you've got some good demographics around it such that they'll be able to continue to pay the rent, but you also want to be able to acquire it cheap enough that you'll profit from that rent. Yeah, if 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 you want to understand the essence of our business model, it 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 is a wonderfully simple, essential model, even understandable to me, an English major. Um, <laughs> uh, there's you're, evidently you're talking a to a music major, so please let, let yeah, her rip. Well, there's a uh, there's evidently a real estate professor at University of Virginia who is fond of saying that real estate is math for C students, which is why I love real estate. Um, <laughs> and that wasn't a political comment about our last president, was it? No, <laughs> maybe because he he was he was an A student. Just ask him. Oh yes, of course. Um, but there's a term, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Corey, there's a term called spread investing. Yeah. And it might sound like a complicated term, but it's actually not. What you're trying to achieve is a positive spread between the, the income you're buying as a percentage of the total investment you're making and the cost of your funds, right? If I buy an asset for $100 and it's going to give me $6 of income, right, uh, before debt service, I want my funding cost blended be between equity and debt yes. to be less right. than six. I want a positive spread. Shocker. Between, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it is actually amazing how many people either don't understand that blazingly simple model or think they can somehow fool the model. And in fact, real estate does have a lot of people in it who go, okay, you know, I just bought income at 6%. The cost of my funds is 7%, but I have a magic idea on how to turn that 6% into nine. And then three years later, the bankers and the, and, and the equity investors are going, hey, dude, um, right. where's that, that nine? Didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, uh, I, I have long maintained that... Uh, what, what success I've had as a business journalist over the years and as an investor uh, in my days when I was a professional investor was about making it simple and not believing that it's actually that complicated. And I've, I've long said the definition of business is selling something for more than it costs. <laughs> that's, that's it. You can't that's go the wrong. List. Yeah. You really, 
really cannot go wrong if you simply observe that simple rule. All right. So, so, so talk to me about the golf business and how that business is different than your hotel business. Cause you've added golf um, in some meaningful ways in the last couple of years. Yeah, actually um, we were, we were born with four golf courses and, and I don't want to bore you and your, uh, and your friends with the intricacies of REIT legislation. But as we were set up as a REIT, one thing that REIT regulations require is that you have what's called a taxable REIT subsidiary that has what's called an active trading business, an operating business. I don't know why you got to do that, but you got to do that. So it was decided as we were being born that golf courses would constitute our operating business within our taxable REIT subsidiary. Um, at first, people were inclined to think, oh, rounding error, why, why are you even in this? But we actually, we, we ended up becoming the owner of these four golf courses at a very propitious time for golf. This was true even pre-COVID, but it definitely uh, became true uh, post-COVID. And we golf, really, and to, for people who don't know, golf has been one of the amazing success stories of COVID. We've talked a lot about boating for some strange reason on our show in the last few weeks. And that's also been true, but the golf business, golf was a sport that people played uh, in increasing numbers during COVID, maybe just because you were outdoors and far apart from people. Exactly. That and, and I think that with things like golf and boating uh, constituted, were shareable experiences, as you say, Corey, outside, and experiences that you can't have in your backyard. And that's actually one of our fundamental real estate investment precepts. We don't own, we don't want to own any real estate where the experience that takes place within the real estate can be put in a box or sent through a wire directly to your house by Amazon or anybody else. Because if you are subject to that literal and figurative displacement. Um, you're you really displaced. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it, so, so, so again, so how is golf different? Sorry, different than, than the hotel business. Oh, um, actually in some fundamental ways, it's not that different. Um, the hotel business, the gaming business, the golf business, they're all businesses that are based upon amazingly perishable inventory. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a hotel sense. room that goes unsold on a Wednesday night stays unsold forever. You, you only have one chance to sell it for a Wednesday night in the middle of February. If it goes unsold, it's unsold forever. Same with gaming tables. Same with a slot machine. Same with a restaurant seat. Same with golf tee times. Right? And what... What I learned working in the ski business and what I admire so greatly in our gaming operating partners and in our golf management team is that they get up every day amazingly excited by the opportunity to put on a show because that's what it is. Every day, it's a chance to put on a show for the guest. They, they get up excited about that and they get, they get up terrified about the fact that that day's inventory is going to perish at midnight. And if I don't sell it today, it stays unsold forever. So it's the operating mentality that actually ties these all, all of these businesses together. Fascinating businesses they are indeed. Um, Ed, thank you very much for your time. Um, I appreciate it. It's an interesting company and one certainly to keep an eye on because it shows us um, uh, 
what people are doing with that leisure time and where they're going. And, and uh, we can see the benefits from that as you guys throw out those dividends and in increasing size every quarter. We try. Not maybe every quarter, but at least once a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fantastic stuff. All right. Um, Ed Petonik, uh, the CEO of Vici. All right, coming up next, we're going to have one number that does tell us a whole lot about Vici, that drill down bite when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And we don't give stock advice. We also are not telling you to break into your neighbor's home. But if you do break into your neighbor's home, sneak around to their smart speakers and say, hey, Alexa, oh play the Drill Down podcast. <laughs> and then go room to room and say, hey, smart speaker, play the Drill Down podcast. We're going to, to listen this to the Drill Down podcast when your neighbor will get the chance to hear it. You can sneak out. They won't hear you because you'll hear my voice instead. Again, we're not supporting breaking no. and entering. No, we're but not. If you're going to do it, do it for a good cause. That cause. No, there's no good podcast. cause. There's a, that's not a good cause, but that's just, a good cause. Just this listen to us, cause. but don't do it like that. On your and speaker. let us know what companies you would, let, would want us to drill down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot about Vici. How big is this business, Isaac? We talked about it in a lot of different ways. But I thought the number of hotel rooms that they manage in their you know, with their MGP, uh, uh, their, their, their MGM transaction, and the 43 properties that they have. I'm going to give you that number, Isaac, how many rooms that is. They manage, or they own the, the real estate for, and they don't manage, they run the, own the real estate for 57,500 hotel rooms. Wow. So it's a, it is a big hotel business. And I was really surprised to hear how well it did through the pandemic. Um, and indeed, um, 400 restaurants in those spaces, bars and nightclubs and so on. Um, uh, a big, big footprint for these places to 117 million square feet. You own 43 hotels that usually don't have that much square footage or that many rooms, but I guess the size and scope of Vegas properties in particular, um, but casino, hotel casino uh, that are connected with casinos are, are, are truly unique and what an interesting business. What a, what a fun conversation that was. It was, I was actually uh, very impressed, surprised in my jaded way. I was surprised to hear just how often these hotels sell out. No yeah, rooms, no yeah. room at the end. Well, uh, yeah, well that, that too, but also the, the wow. sale of the businesses that, that you don't get into the hotel business. You don't get into a hotel property without the plan for getting out as well. Yeah. Right. We enjoyed yeah. Uh, this time with you. We hope you've enjoyed it too. You've been listening to Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor, and he is extraordinary. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.